I'm Carla Thrice to Walk, and these are just some thoughts on a Sunday. And what I do on these weekly updates is I give an update on where we're at in our efforts to help some Afghan Christians in their immigration journey and just some general thoughts. So um, I usually give a little overview about um, what this little effort is, just in case this is the first time you're listening to something. But I got involved in this uh, actually started helping my friend Mark Ritchie um, with his Bible studies that he was teaching in Pakistan via Zoom. And this was, he had been doing this since October, 2020. And um, I started in helping him in about a year later in October, 2021. And first it was with Pakistanis in a Bible study that actually had the opportunity to uh, speak and um, teach at two pastors conferences where they had about 500 people um, especially considering what's going on in the SBC right now it's like utterly hilarious to me that uh, they're like totally fine with it and <laughs> here in the U.S. some people aren't so anyway um, was able to do that and uh, then last October I filled in for two of his Bible studies or with some um, Afghan Christians and that was right at the time when Pakistan was uh, really lowering the boom on um, people who were in the country that didn't have valid visas at the time and a lot of them had come had escaped from Afghanistan the year before and Pakistan wasn't renewing visas so it was big now so that kind of started um, this whole effort and so now we are and still teaching the Bible studies. Um, actually, I put it down to one Bible study with Afghans because uh, Mark, you know, he's retired and I'm in a completely life, different life situation than he is. And so uh, when he didn't come back in, uh, in December, I basically kind of took over and I thought it was going to be a break. And the break turned into longer than I thought it was going to be. And so when that happened, I just said, hey, so I am a uh, not in the same life circumstances that Mark is. And so um, we're just gonna go to one. So now we do one on Mondays and uh, people just join in on Zoom in Afghanistan. They also, um, I do invite the people who uh, want to come to my Sunday Bible study um, at my church. Um, we have been doing hybrid since the pandemic started. Uh, and so, they're able to zoom in on that. Um, we had several people in this morning. Uh, usually, we actually, sometimes we have more people on Zoom than we do in our class. True story. So um, that's just been, it's been really interesting. It's added it all a different dynamic to our Bible study. Today we were actually talking about um, Jeremiah, was it 29? It's Jeremiah 29, this today in Bible study. And uh, kind of, there were some, correlations to uh, what the Afghans are experiencing right now. So anyway, but uh, so anyway, we started on this effort. We're trying to help them uh, to survive and also um, trying to find a way for that path for them to immigrate. And then Mark's friend Don uh, joined in and he has a ministry. Uh, he does ministry all over the world, but um, he is partnering with us in that if people donate to his ministry at donshireministries.org and select Raise to Walk, then he that money will go to um, help our people. So anyway, that's been a real blessing because uh, Mark has, or not, well, both of them, Mark and Don, have a lot of experience in ministry in other countries, but Don has a lot of uh, experience in like 
you know, getting money different places. And sometimes that can be more of a challenge than you might think it might be. And um, so, you know, money is, gets donated there. And then I just tell him where we, you know, what we need and who it needs to be sent to and send him the documentation. And then he sends it and takes care of if you're reporting and everything. So that makes it really easy. But anyway, so that's what this is all about. But just for the thoughts for today. So today's, um, today's theme is a topic is fighting to win. And I was talking to a friend yesterday and her husband is uh, fighting cancer right now. And um, just, uh, I can't even remember how long it's been, maybe two years that he's been going through this. I think that's about right. Might be a little bit longer, but you know, it's just this roller coaster. You know, I think he's getting better and then, you know, things going down. And so, you know, I was just telling her, you know, I know cancer is such, such a miserable thing. It's such a miserable thing. But, you know, the only consolation I would think would be that, you know, she's in, we're in Houston and we have the very best, the very best doctors in the world. And if there's any way that, you know, uh, medicine can save him, it will be done because they, they fight to win. They fight to win. They, they look at every... Um, every case is we're going to win this. If there's a way to do it, it will be done. And I was remember reading an article when COVID came out and this is like at the very beginning and people didn't even know. And they were having to, they were, there were stories about the doctors would have to go on these calls like almost daily and watching updates because what they were finding out about COVID was changing all the time. And they would look at, okay, well, this is what's happening. We give them this treatment and then this is, you know, this is a, an outcome from that. And how do we prevent this? And so they were literally just having to um, manage and modify treatments on the fly because it, it was so new and they just were trying to figure it out. But that was the attitude that came through is that they were, they were, they wouldn't accept defeat. They were, you know, fighting to win. And there was a lady that, um, she was somebody that, because I hadn't heard of anybody locally having COVID for actually quite a few months into it. She was one of the first pe people that um, there was a story about that she had COVID. She went in, she was, I don't even know, she was in the hospital for quite a while. Um, they, I mean, if they, she hadn't been here in Houston and if she didn't have a spouse that was, willing to fight for her and push for her treatment that she wouldn't have made it at all because they had to he had to fight to get her moved to another hospital then he had to fight uh for her to get some experimental treatment and then um then the doctors what she kept saying what the the husband kept saying in an interview um they were in i can't remember it was houston methodist or herman memorial but they were in one of the main hospitals here and she said that, you know, she had every single sort of specialist coming in, you know, doctor, heart doctors, you know, liver, you know, whatever it was, whatever system it was, she had a specialist coming in to check on her. And the doctor just kept, or the husband, you know, commenting on the team of doctors that treated her said it had a heck of a team, heck of a team, heck of a team, heck of a team. He kept saying that over and over and over again. And that's why she is alive today because she had a heck of a team 
that was fighting for her to come through. And unfortunately, you know, not everybody has that. And unfortunately, she literally almost dies from dies from it. She had a GoFundMe that for her health care afterwards. And then she turns into this COVID denier anti-vaxxer, anti-masker. It's just the craziest thing I ever heard. Anyway, but that's the point. I mean, you have to you have to fight to win. And that's why I think that the doctors here are some of some of, if not the best in the world, is because they do have that attitude. When you fight what you think are impossible odds, you become the best because you just go for it even if you think it's not going to work. And um, I think that's that's what we have to remember. It's like, what are we, what are we really fighting for, or what are we going for? Are we only going to start an effort because we think we can win and that we can get this, you know, accomplishment? For ourselves or are we doing it because we think it's the right thing and we're just going to do it no matter what there's a couple of verses about this that um oh wait let's see what am i doing you know the first one people talk about you know spiritual warfare and there's all these people that going around you know think thinking they're in god's army and you know it's oh that's a little bit big um you know the verses that's referring to is or it should be, anyway. I don't know if some of the people who are claiming to be these uh, spiritual warriors even know what they're talking about, but you know, it goes back to Ephesians 6, you know, verses uh, 10 through 13, and you know, it talks about um, saying that we, we're, for we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And it says to put on the full armor of God to be able to resist the enemy and um, resist the enemy in the time of evil, and then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. But if you go and read the rest of that chapter, it's talking about like how you how you do that is that you have to stand in truth. You know, it talks about putting on the breastplate of righteousness, but you have to be standing in God's truth and. Um, a lot of times we would rather believe a lie than accept a truth that we don't like. And um, if you reject truth, then you're really the evil. You are the source of the evil. There's another passage. I don't have a a uh, screenshot for this, but it's in First Corinthians nine, and Paul is talking about you know these these things in ourselves that we are. Uh, it's he's kind of going through the whole grace work. Like, are you are you saved so you can continue in sin? You know, it's it's not that exact exact chapter, but he's talking about the same thing. He's talking about you know I'm free in Christ, but not everything is good for me. And he's when he's talking about in this one passage where he says I fight, and not as shadow boxing, but you know he's he's fighting to win. He's actually um, understanding that the real battle is within ourselves. These, um, these thoughts, ideas, and um, these emotions that aren't in alignment with God's Word. It's like we have to be willing to submit to the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, we have, we have to recognize those things in ourselves before we can see clearly what the, um, 
a lot of times what the truth in the, in the situation is. Um, in Psalms 51, David is, this is David's prayer to God, and this is after, you know, he had committed, it, I mean, this is the thing, this is after he had committed, he had had one of his faithful men murdered because he had had an affair with the man's wife, but he he only comes to this place after after the baby dies. <laughs> he He's only repenting then, and it takes that, takes all of that. Nathan, the prophet, is confronting him. You know, he doesn't really, it, it's just, it, it takes that, the death of that child, that before he really comes to a place of repentance before God. And he is writing in Psalms 51, um, this is his confession to God. And in verse 10, it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. Don't banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. And this is what the process of sanctification is. We have to submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit and allow Him to um, point out the things in us that are wrong. And um, there's another verse in Psalms where David writes, keep me from lying to myself, because we lie to ourselves all the time. There's all kinds of things that we don't want to admit to ourselves that we have to. But then in verse 13, after this, he's saying, God, clean me out make me good. And then in verse 13, it says, then I will teach your ways to the rebels and they will return to you. So what I think that, um, at least, you know, in the U.S., we see uh, this blight on the church where they don't think that they need to confess and repent, that they don't have anything that needs to be cleaned out or sanctified. And then they're going and telling everyone else, what they're doing wrong, and that's completely opposite of what God's way is. And um, in First Corinthians five, at the end, I don't know how these big um, this passage memorized, but it's at the end of the chapter, and Paul is chewing out the uh, church at Corinth because they are. It sounds like they were celebrating this man that was living in sin and like he was married to his mother-in-law or something and so he's like this is something even the pagans don't do and and he said you're boasting about it this is just shameful and uh, he writes that he said when I wrote to you before not to associate with people who were like in a whole list of things a whole list of offenses he said I wasn't talking about people outside the church he said you'd have to leave the leave this world to do that I was talking about was it people that did those things, and it was sexual immorality, greed, abusing other people, um, but that say that they're believers. He said, don't even eat with such a one. And, and he writes, it's not my job to judge those outside the church, but as the scriptures say, you must re remove the evil person from among you. And this is what, this is what it's about. It's about this... Um, God's church has to be clean. And we as, you know, uh, each individual Christian, you know, is, it says we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We have to be cleansed. Because if we can't, if he can't uh, instill his truth in us, then he's not going to be able to instill his truth anywhere else. And we're not going to be able to see clearly, you know, the whole thing with the log and the mite and, and the splinter in the eye, what Jesus says. Uh, talking about 
um, we, we can't see that clearly. And um, we're not going to be able to reflect life Christ. And so why would anyone be drawn to him if the image that we're presenting is so um, polluted? So anyway, um, that is uh, fighting battles that um, seem impossible. It's kind of been the theme for the week. And uh, I was talking to, you know, that's the thing I have to remind myself. You just do it because it needs to be done, not because not get hung up on the outcome and just keep on. But I was um, talking to somebody and uh, <laughs> they were, I had just made a, a comment like, oh yeah, I, I'm, I made a comment about some brown coats and which is a reference to, uh, if you've ever watched Firefly, it was a TV, very short-lived TV series. Um, it was in, uh, I think only one, one season and then it got canceled. Josh Whedon was the creator of that. And then, uh, anyway, the, they wore these brown leather coats, so they're called brown coats. So they're kind of like the rebels against this overarching, you know, this, this empire that was really authoritarian and trying to make everybody do exactly what they, they wanted to do. But um, that is, you know, fighting, fighting impossible odds, that's what it was. And this is from the, kind of the agent of this, I can't remember what they call it. I think they called it the Alliance. But uh, this is the agent. He's going out and basically wiping out everyone that won't submit to their will or that causes problems. And Mal is, it's short for Malcolm, but I think it's kind of interesting that that can also be bad in like some, um, some languages. But uh, the operative says, I'm sorry, you should know there's no shame in this. You've done remarkable things, but you're fighting a war you've already lost. Mal says, yeah, well, I'm known for that. And sometimes that's what you just have to do. You just have to just keep on um, fighting for things, even if it seems like there's not going to be a win. Um, that is what uh, Hebrews chapter 11, which is a faith chapter. It's, you know, it's Hebrew. Faith is not believing things that there's no evidence for. Faith is having enough evidence that you know that you can trust the outcome. And, or at least ha having enough trust in the person that you are um, putting your, your trust in that you're able to act, that you go forward and you act. It's trust that commits. And so the whole chapter of Hebrews is about um, people who fought those impossible battles and went up against impossible odds. And so Paul is writing here. I'm not going to read. I'm not sure. Let's see. So this is what he writes. And what more can I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and about Daniel and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, was promised, who shut the mouth of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies. Women regained the dead, raised, women received their dead, raised back to life. There were others 
who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain even a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were, they were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and, and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that not only together with us would they be made perfect. So this is what this is what Paul is talking about. You know, we see those stories of the people who did um, receive the victory, but God looks at the people who only suffer persecution and did not see that final good end. It's just the same. They're still to be commended for the faith because they just went and did what needed to be done, regardless of the outcome. So anyway, um, those are just some thoughts for today, and uh, it's just on the importance of you know we need to fight to win. Do it because it's the right thing to do, not because you're attached to an outcome for it. But going on to what is going on in Afghanistan this week, and just a reminder that the Taliban are terrorists. Uh, this is a story about a journalist who was imprisoned by the Taliban because of his affiliation with the former government. And all of these things I'm talking about today, uh, and probably tomorrow, I'll have an article on my website that has uh, the audio version of this, as well as links to all these stories and, um, and other things. So it will be all collected in that, that one place. Um, even on YouTube, I can't I don't have enough room for all the links that I put in to a story. Um, this is interesting. I mean, this isn't new, but this is a, a, this is a story shared about Taliban. They're basically teaching a false history in the schools. Um, they're basically, the schools in Afghanistan are basically religious schools. Uh, girls can only go to, I'm not sure they can now, Actual education was shut off for girls uh, over a year ago, um, but some they I think in some places they were allowed to go to religious schools. I'm not even sure if that's the case now, but uh, anyway, according to this, they're teaching a, a false version of um, history so that you know it fits the Taliban agenda. Totally reminds me of what's going on in Texas under Greg Abbott. Uh, they're like just a big push to eliminate uh, things from his, the history classes that doesn't suit them, like they don't like, there was actually even a, a recommendation or some suggestion to change the definition of slavery because it basically, you know, it's like basically been taken over by lost causers that, you know, try to make it seem like the uh, slavery under the, you know, the U.S. South was, you know, benevolent rather than absolutely horrific. One of the Wesleys, I get them confused. I don't know if it's John or Charles Wesley, but he said it was one of some of the most horrific slavery he had ever seen, just the brutality of it in the American South. And um, that's reality. And, you know, saying that you don't want to, changing a history book does not change reality. It just makes you a deceiver and a liar. That's what it makes you. Okay. 
so here's the thing. There's a, I have a video that I'm going to share. And this is of a guy who, this is a, an older man um, that is, it looks like he's in some office somewhere in Afghanistan. He is just chewing out the Taliban. So I'm going to play this. And then after I play this, I'm going to read it in English. I was thinking about not, um, I was thinking about not having it, having the sound and then just reading it as it was playing. But I thought, no, you know, you, his, his voice needs to be heard. So if you listen to this on audio later, this is a man standing, just uh, shaking his hand and just, You'll hear it in his voice, and then I'll, I'll read what he's. I'll, I'll let you know what he actually he said. Okay, so this is what, if you're listening later, this is what he said. After the British, the Russians came and bombed people's house, but the people did not leave their houses and they did not flee to Iran, Pakistan, and Europe. But today that the Taliban Emirates is here, people fall down and die from the bottom of of planes while running away. People are fleeing. People are leaving, be lining behind passport office. What is the reason people are desperate to flee their home? This country, this land has turned into a hell for us. This is life in Afghanistan under the Taliban because the Taliban are terrorists and thugs. If you see any stories out there trying to act like the Taliban are partners in counterterrorism, it's a complete and total lie. It's total lie, it's propaganda. And how did we get here? Oh, yes, let's just remember, it was from the Doha Agreement that was signed in 2020 by Trump's proxies, Mark Meadows and Zalmay Kalazat. Not sure if I'm saying his name right, but it was literally, it was like a total loser, loser of a deal. It was no deal at all. It's like they basically rolled over, had their belly open, and was playing dead, giving the Taliban everything that they wanted. And so in the agreement, the Taliban guaranteed nothing. Or even if they said they were, uh, that they wouldn't, I mean, anything that you could say that they were said to do, they haven't held up, but they didn't start stop their attacks. They didn't, uh, they are killing our, are uh, the NATO allies, they've done nothing. And why, sh why should they? Because we've shown ourselves to be weak and not willing to do what needs to be done. But we agreed to withdraw. Trump released, they released 5,000 terrorists, among them who are in the, in the Taliban administration now. And we also agreed to not interfere with them and then we also are paying the money. And so some people have said it's like $80 million, $80 million a month to the Taliban. So when you see all these things that the Taliban are doing, just keep in mind that that's basically who we're funding. We're funding the Taliban. This is us. So today in um, 
Bible study again. We were in Jeremiah, and uh, so the teacher was saying, "Well, why did Nebuchadnezzar actually invade Judah?" And she's like, "She pointed out was that they Judah quit paying taxes, so they're basically, you know, doing it's like extortion. It's a shakedown by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, so that he doesn't come in after them. And then Judah stopped paying, and then that's when Nebuchadnezzar invaded." And so I was thinking about that. I'm thinking, so is that what we're doing with the money that we're giving the Taliban? Because we've gotten nothing from this deal at all. I mean, we look like complete and total fools. We've gotten nothing from it. Is this basically extortion that we're paying to the Taliban so they're not going to come and bomb us? Is that what this is? This is just a payoff? Are we like basically paying tribute to the Taliban? Because that's what it kind of seems like to me. But anyway. So what are some of the lies that are going on about the about Afghanistan, the situation there? And again, this is fighting to win. You have to know what the truth is, know even really what you're fighting. And this is a, um, I share his stuff a lot, uh, Stephen Jensen. He, um, he's writing a book on Afghanistan, and he's talking about this, in this particular tweet, he's saying that um, the, we like to say, we were the last soldier in Afghanistan. It wasn't true. NATO allies were there after we left. So we bail, we run, and there's still people there. This is another, it was a really interesting thread. He was talking about, um, like, what, because there's this narrative out there that Afghanistan has always been a nation that has been in turmoil and that it's never been at peace. And so he has a long string uh, uh, in this thread of how that's just not true. And he was pointing out, like, if, you know, if Biden had been paying attention to the country when he be first became a senator, he would have seen, you know, what the country was like when it was under the monarchy. Uh, there was some discussion in, in this, I think it was this thread, they were talking about, well, you know, there was all, all this, you know, there was a, there was, the country as a whole was at peace, but there was sort of, you know, there was tension between individual tribes. You know, there was never, it was never a united cohesive whole. And I have to say to that, so what? I mean, have you ever heard of this country called the United States? That's kind of, we're the same way. You know, we are a single country and we have a lot of different people and states and that's kind of what we are, the United States. Yes, everybody and people have different opinions. Does this mean that, you know, we have never been without a country without war? I know we have some crazy things happen recently, but no, it's just life. I mean, people are different. Not everybody's going to be the same. And, you know, it sounds to me like Afghanistan under the, uh, the monarchy was kind of similar to, I mean, other than the fact that it was a monarchy and not a democracy, but, um, you know, they had different groups and that's just, that's the way we are too. We have different states. We have different groups. That's life. Those are people. Um, here's an, uh, something that my friend Clint shared. It was just a picture of what it was like before the Taliban, just being able to go and enjoy life. And you're um, talking about, I could, they could never imagine that life would be what it is like now. And that's what I've heard so, from so many of the young people in my group is I've heard this over and over again. I just can't believe this happened. I would never have imagined that it could be like this because 
you know, they grew up in a time when the Taliban were not in power and they could never have imagined that it would be like the way it is today. Never imagined, never imagined it. <sighs> okay, this is another picture of um, Afghanistan I think in, in the 60s and this could be any neighborhood in the US at that time, no different, no different. There's, and we think it couldn't happen here. And let me tell you, I read the stories about what's going on in Afghanistan and what Greg Abbott and the Texas legislature are doing. Let me tell you, exactly the same. Exactly the same. It's really freaky. There's um, a book Sinclair Lewis wrote called It Can't Happen Here. Moral of the story, yes, yes it can if you don't take the threat seriously. Um, Okay, this one is a, uh, this is a post Stephen Jensen shared. It was a fashion designer um, in the 60s. And this one really kind of hit me hard because I think it was the same day that I had my reading class with the kids and um, the 13-year-old, uh, she wants to be a model. <laughs> she wants to be a fashion designer. I've, I've been, she shows me the things that she likes and, uh, you know, we're kind of more casual here. I don't know that we're fancy enough for her, but... It's just, I, I can't even explain to you how stressful it is sometimes just knowing what would be in store for her if her family is deported back to Afghanistan. You know, there's just, it's so horrific there. But um, they had life, you know, life before the Taliban. And the Taliban, it's not even about, you know, going against the enemy. It's just there, it just, just, the sucking every single uh, bit of joy and pleasure out of life, anything, anything, music, uh, you know, just trying to to ruin everything in life and to take everything for themselves, which also sounds like a lot of our some people that could be named here in Texas in the U.S. Okay, so moving on. This is uh, this is the last episode of the Afghanistan Project podcast. They had an interview with a guy who's an Afghan who used to be an interpreter. He worked for both the Canadian and U.S. forces. And it's really interesting about his um, his uh, his commentary. He actually kind of learned about um, Western culture through movies, and so he was saying he was talking about working for the Canadians and one of the things that really upset him was when they, like they didn't trust him it's like I'm he's like I'm here with their troops they're putting their life in my hands but they don't trust me to use their wi-fi that's basically what it was and then the food was bad that was the other thing and then he was talking about when he went to the U.S. base um, and interpreted there he said it was just totally different they gave him good food and they were you know treated him like a, a team member rather than just somebody you know, it was held off to the side. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Other things that are going on this week, it was announced that there was a, um, the Afghan Adjustment Act was reintroduced into Congress. Um, I'm not sure if it differs at all from the other, I don't know, but because it's it's been in Congress multiple times. There was another, something else that had elements of the Afghan Adjustment Act, but basically there's a huge backlog. The people that came here, we took, we did evacuate 76,000 people, and only a fraction of those have had their applications processed. They were just picked up and t taken here. They still have to um, have either an SIV application processed, which is a path to citizenship, 
or they apply under humanitarian parole and um, that if they are granted humanitarian parole then they are uh, they still have to apply for asylum so I have to go through and read this last one I just heard this a few days ago I haven't read through it but um, I think that this is making it so they don't have to go I don't know I don't know but anyway the humanitarian parole for those coming in the Afghans coming in is two years obviously two years is up in August uh, Biden did an extension uh, because Congress hadn't acted and so now they're extended another two years but they still need they still need a path they're kind of in limbo and also in that press release this is just one of the first articles that came up the guy he's like he helped he helped this has been in process for a long time there have been a lot of people involved but um oh SIV applications they just totally backed up and um the uh they, they don't respond and so that was one of the things in at least in this press release said that they will give a response because people aren't getting responses to their applications there was actually a i think i shared this about a month ago so ago there was actually a, a court case that the biden administration was trying to get vacated where the judge said you need to step it up and get this done and process the siv applications and they're trying to get that vacated so they don't have to so anyway even the judge says this is ridiculous other thing I mentioned this last week there was um, welcome core on campus it was announced and that is so welcome core is a program another path to immigration that was announced in January where private sponsors can sponsor a refugee family and the it's based on the Canadian program because they have they have that right now it's only open to people who are already referred into the USRAP system and but in phase two which is supposed to happen mid this year so anytime um, it's supposed to open up to people who um, supposedly private sponsors will be able to refer people into the program so that's what we're really hoping for so anyway, so this Welcome Car on Campus is a new thing that was just announced last week. And there's an information meeting on Wednesday that I'm going to try to go to. But uh, I did find a little bit more about it. The person that our translator in Washington, uh, she had said, oh, yes, for she had read somewhere that it was before for students between 18 and 30 and their families. I found some of the uh, FAQ on it. It's not actually 1824, which is just, I can't even tell you. It's a knife in my heart. It's such a bummer because I just I can't tell you. I have a lot of people between 25 and 30 that, um, <laughs> I have a lot that were college students that would now not fit this because of age. But anyway, what this is, it's um, basically an effort to use um, universities as resettlement centers to help people get here and acclimated and trained and connected into the community which I have to say I think that that is a good idea and I guess it's for their families too now I which is amazing because we have one family has an SIV application in 
hasn't even come out of common approval, which is basically step one in, let me go back and find the SAV path. Let's see. Yeah. This is what it looks like for an SIV applicant. And none of this starts at all until it comes out of common approval. And they aren't even there yet. And um, I was talking to a couple of people about this week. And the thing is, they have to, for it to come out of common approval, they have to actually talk to the, the American who was a supervisor. And um, Clint was saying that one of, one of his people, they can't track down the supervisor. So he has, you know, one of his people, they, he doesn't think that it's going to go go anywhere because because of that. So we're going to have to try to find another option for him. But um, I think that's an interesting plan. Um, in our my discussion with the Afghans this week, they were talking about, because they had talked about, you know, Biden talking to the Philippines to let, to take some people to process there. And I was like, yeah, I don't know about that. And I'm thinking, why would it, why would any other country, the way we have shown ourselves to not process and just to leave our problems for everybody else, why would anybody want to do that? Because, you know, like just for example, for everybody in Pakistan, the people were told that wanted to apply for the P1, P2 pass on the humanitarian parole were told to leave Afghanistan and that they had to be out of Afghanistan for a year before their their um, applications would be processed so they left they were given that advice and then nothing has been done we're almost almost at two years now and uh, the excuses that that's coming from the state department is that it, they blame it on pakistan that uh, that pakistan won't let them set up a resettlement service center and so that's why they can't process it that's a bunch of baloney if that were true if that were true then what's, what's the deal with people sit, still sitting in Albania and Qatar and United Arab Emirates? They're still sitting there. And so that you have, you are able to process people there. So if that were the case, and if that was the only reason that people aren't being processed is because you need a center, then why aren't they gone? And then you could have moved people from Pakistan there. No, those, those people are still sitting there too. It's just... But the interesting thing that never occurred to me is that they're like, oh, well, they were talking about these camps. So uh, we have one family, do not even ask me how they did this, but they have an SOV application sitting there waiting in Islamabad. They, their visas, ex their Pakistan visas expired. Pakistan won't renew them. They're doing door-to-door -door searches. Uh, the police are doing door-to-door -door searches. People are being arrested, deported, it's a serious, serious uh, mess. Somehow they get, again, I have no idea how this happened. Somehow they get a tourist visa to go to Spain. And from Spain, they went to Germany. The wife actually had worked with, you know, German, German orga organizations, I think actually German government organizations. And they're trying to apply, apply for asylum and they're in a camp right now. And so that's the way a lot of things are. They're camps like Albania, they're the camps. The, the humanitarian city in um, United Arab Emirates is a camp. And so um, when I was talking about, we were talking about you know, immigration, I said, they were talking about camps. I said, well, that's kind of the thing. We don't have camps. 
here in the U.S., I mean, other than, like, if we take, you know, what happened to uh, one of our, the cousin of one of our people who came at the, came across the Mexican border, turned, you know, and uh, turned himself into Border Patrol, and he was in um, Core Civic Detention Center, uh, you know, basically in prison for two months. But he called it a camp. <laughs> it was like, you're at a camp, they arrested you. That's not what that is. So anyway, it's Core Civic. So anyway, um, that's the thing. I said, we don't, we don't have that here. And so we have to find people. I was explaining how Welcome Corps and the rest of the things work. I said, we have to find people to place you with. You know, they have to have find people to help you. We don't have a camp. So anyway, hopefully that Welcome Corps on campus will be will be a help. Um, they're not the same thing. They're not, the first people are going, the people are, people are already in user app. They're going to start in 2024. They start in fall 2024. I'm just thinking, if we get the unique share designations, that would take care of that problem. But anyway, okay. But then the whole other groups, and they don't say which designated groups it would be open to. That won't. That would start in 2025. Here's the problem: people are starving now. They need help now, and. I, I don't know. I just, uh, it's so frustrating. I just want to smack people. It's like they're so blase about it. It's like, oh, well, okay, we're just going to dink around and, you know, <laughs> so maybe sometime eventually we'll get around to it. I mean, people are starving. I mean, I saw a picture of one person that sent me, he's like, I'm not feeling well. He literally looked like a Holocaust victim. I'm not joking. Oh, so frustrating. <sighs> so, what are we doing this week? I don't even know. This is one of those weeks where I feel like I, I've sent a lot of emails, but I haven't really seen any, I don't know. I hope things are moving somewhere, but I haven't been seeing any traction lately. Haven't been getting responses. Again, just have to remind myself to keep growing, but this has been one of those weeks. Met with the, um, so I do Bible study on Monday, and then on Thursday I meet with, um, I do, I read with uh, some of the kids. There's like a, two families living in one apartment, so I meet with them. And uh, one of the fathers said that we were we're actually been reading the Railway Children by um, Edith Nesbitt. It's really interesting. Like if you read the story about the Railway Children, um, it's based on the Dreyfus affair. A man falsely accused of espionage, and it was a big deal. And uh, so we talked about like how real life events can influence authors and um, she was friends with two Russian, oh, actually one was Ukrainian and the other was rough, uh, Russian. They were revolutionaries they, who had escaped to England. They were friends and um, I think that there's a lot of um, influences in the story about that, about justice, you know, about and perversion of justice. So anyway, we haven't gotten very far. So what we do is I read it on I share my Kindle, I share it on Kindle to Zoom, and then we'll read a page, and then they tell me the verse, or not the verses, they'll tell me words that they don't know. They don't understand what it means. It's kind of interesting. The other thing that's really been interesting is, um, it's, so it's written, it was published in 1902, so it's like 120 years ago. It's also, she's British, so the way they use words is different than the way we use words. But uh, 
we're talking about like when you use whom and whom. And uh, so we're having this big long discussion and some of my friends, uh, my friends that have been teaching on other days, they're actual educators. And so they do like real lessons, not just me reading. And they've been teaching sentence structure and stuff. And he says, I don't think Americans know how to use these words. I'm like, I think you're right. They don't. A lot of Americans do not know their own language. It is very, very true. And sometimes I, I like explaining a word and I'm thinking, okay, I better look up the definition so I can make sure that I'm doing the right. So anyway, so that's what we've been doing. We'll just keep going. And uh, again, if you want to um, help our little group, you can go to Donshire Ministries at raisedwalk.org. Select Raise to Walk. Uh, did I say that right? DonshireMinistries.org. Select Raise to Walk. And uh, you can donate there. Um, one of the things that we've, I think I, I mentioned this the last couple of weeks, we're working on um, encouraging them to work on their English skills. And I do have someone that um, can teach uh, remotely. So that he has a whole curriculum that he has taught you know, via Zoom and by email. And then we have another group that is actually thinking about starting an English school, which is like be actually amazing because if they get it all registered and everything, this would also solve some of our visa problems. So that would be awesome. But um, if uh, you wanted to fund someone's um, English classes for three months, it's $50. That's what um, the going rate is for for English classes, and it's actually pretty important for them. Um, I think I mentioned that our we've had people miss out on uh, embassy interviews for possible asylum because they didn't their English wasn't strong enough to present their case. And there's a couple of uh, other programs that. Um, a visa paths, but they have to have the English skills at a level that it, you know they can perform the job. So it, unless if they know English, that's not open to them. So we are. I've been stressing this. Um, you know, if they got on a plane tomorrow, you know, would they be ready when they got there? So we need to make sure that they're ready, and that includes learning English. I also need to learn Persian. This is what I, I actually have sent some phrases. I need to. I need to get on that. I, I've been, I've been interacting with them long enough that I should know more than I do. So I need to make that a priority. But anyway, so that's the update for this week. And um, hope you have a great week coming up, and that you're also able to do some good yourself. So talk to you later.